you can open up that insert, and on the inside, you should see the sermon text, my main point for us this morning, and a brief little outline. So we're looking at Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through chapter 21, verse 4. It will become clear to you why these go together, although there's a big chapter break in your Bible. Um, And I am excited because we are just journeying verse by verse through Luke's gospel, and we're landing on about sermon number 70 on Luke. I counted them, yes. I actually only counted 66, but there's a handful of sermons that haven't been recorded (coughs) for various reasons, more accident. But lots of sermons on this wonderful gospel, and we are going to be finishing it by the fall. So, with that, let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to get a drink of water because my throat is scratchy. All right. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I had the privilege this past week of listening to a sermon by Dr. Tim Keller, Timothy Keller. It is often that I do that. Sometime during the week, listen to a sermon of his. They are good for my soul. This past week, I believe the title was Finishing Well. You can find it just on his uh, little podcast thing on the podcast app. And in the passage, or in the, the, the sermon, Dr. Tim Keller made a statement about the one thing you need in life. The only thing that you need. And so I put that question before you. How would you answer it? Air, water, um, family. If you want to be super Christian-y, you might say Jesus or something. Um, But I loved his answer. Dr. Tim Keller in that sermon said, There is only one thing we need in life. Friendship with God. Friendship with God. It's something, it's a sentiment that has been argued Uh, decades ago by a a, a man by the name of J.I. Packer. You might have read his seminal work titled Knowing God. He has a chapter in there on adoption, and he explores the beauty of being made sons and daughters of God. But his opening line in that chapter, I still remember, I still see it in my mind's eye right now, where I was sitting when I read it, but he says, what it means to be a Christian fundamentally is nothing other than this, to have God as Father. To have God as Father. To have God as our Father, and therefore to have His approval, His acceptance, is the key that unlocks the door to your deepest satisfaction. Your deepest happiness. 
And that truth, to have God as your father, and therefore to have his approval, his acceptance, is the key that unlocks the door to freedom from anxiety, freedom from fear, freedom from everything. And this passage this morning is going to take us deep into the depths of our sinfulness. It has done a work, it's done a number on me this past week, and I just have the joy of letting it get after you as well. But it's a good passage because it answers the question and lifts our eyes off of ourselves and helps us answer the question, why do we so often live for the eyes of other people? Why do we so often live our life for the praise of others? Why in the world does Taylor so often seek to impress those around him? Why do you? Why do you spend so much of your time spinning wheels, balancing plates, to look better than you actually are? We forget that we have friendship with God. We forget Christianity 101. It is to have God as Father, therefore, his approval, his acceptance. We forget And therefore, we're driven so often to try to impress others, to look more put together than we are. This morning, what we're going to learn is that the gospel of the kingdom creates in us humility that causes us to give generously. That's what these two passages, these two paragraphs are working in us, that the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached and Jesus embodied ought to create in us a humility, a lowliness when we think about ourselves and our sinfulness in light of God and his holiness. And that humility causes us to respond to the mercy and the grace of God by living a life of generosity. Jesus is going to attack, he's going to launch an attack this morning against pretending. He's going to do a full-out assault on our natural bent to make ourselves look better than we are. Jesus is going to invite us. He's going to challenge us to quit pretending, to quit faking it. Or to put it in the words of the ESV, Gospel Transformation Study Bible, which I know many of you have. Um, I just want to read this quote. It should be in the insert on the left side. God cares about the inner person and wants our affections to be rightly ordered. That is, to receive Jesus' message is to gladly reorient our loves and values according to God's kingdom. Here, Jesus addresses a crucial heart condition that will result in condemnation. Performance for the sake of the praise of others. So to explore this truth, that the gospel of the kingdom intends to create in us a humility that overflows in generosity, we're going to look at each of these paragraphs just one at a time. I don't know why this always happens, but we're going to spend most of the time on our first point, and then we'll move quickly through the second one. But first, beware of the scribes, their pride, selfishness, and living for the approval of others. I'm getting this from verses 45 through 47 there at the top. Now, remember the context. Who is Jesus talking to? There's been a big crowd. Jesus has been duking it out with all kinds of people. Not physically, just talking. He's been disputing. The scribes and the Pharisees are there. You remember a couple weeks ago, they've come and they've tried to confound Jesus by asking him, by what authority you do what you do? 
The scribes and Pharisees, the, the moralistic conservatives of the day. And then those people send private covert spies in to try to trick Jesus, try to pull him into a political debate. Should we render to Caesar tribute? It was a dispute we looked at a couple weeks ago. And then last week we looked at the Sadducees, the relativistic liberals of their day, coming and asking Jesus, trying to trick him as it pertains to the doctrine of the resurrection that is yet future. In the context of this, lots of people have gathered. The disciples are there. There's people from the town, and you have all kinds of religious leaders, scribe, Pharisee, Sadducee. And our passage picks up. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So this sermon, this passage, is for you and me. People following Jesus, learning from Jesus how he would live our lives if he were we. But he's doing it in the hearing of all the people. That's why I love Jesus often does this. He's looking around. He's been disputing the scribe, Pharisee, and the Sadducee. Bunch of town people around. The disciples are there. And he's looking at them now and saying, don't be like them. That's awesome. So let's look at those people that we're not to be like. Beware of the scribes. Now, the scribes are the Pharisees. They're a group of Pharisees. All scribes are Pharisees, but not all Pharisees are scribes. Okay? So these scribes are Pharisees. They're walking around in long robes, flowing robes, your translation might have said. These were long, elaborate robes that just it meant to create a distinction, a barrier. Right? I'm not you because I am better than you. Robes. They would have had phylacteries on them, like little string things with boxes on the end that you would have had across your forehead and on your arm. Inside those little boxes were little rolled up parchments of scripture. Probably some of them including humility, but they didn't listen to that. Long robes. We are better than you. It's not just the robes that were the problem. Look at the heart of the, the scribes in verse 46. They like to walk around in them. They like to walk around town. I'm in my robes. I'm more spiritual than you. I am superior. But not only that, they love greetings in the marketplace. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Further flashy marks of eminence, of wealth, leisure. Not only are they wearing the robes that said, I don't have to work for my living like you. I'm a gentlemen of leisure, but they also liked the most important spots around town, at the, the feasts and the, uh, the banquets, weddings, and um, at church, such that when they sat closer, when they were close to the reading of the scripture in the synagogues and close to the, the rabbi who was teaching, those in the back would look forward and say, oh, like those, those are the important ones. They are the important ones. Those are the big shots. This is a mixture of such pride on behalf of the scribe, but also it's all about appearance. They're sitting there, they're having these greetings in the marketplace and wanting the best seats at the, at the banquets, not just because they thought they were better than everybody else, but because they wanted to be seen by others as the most important and most spiritual. But as the resume goes, these guys are doing something else. Look at verse 47. Devouring widows' houses. Now, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. This is speculation, but there's a few different things it could be. Scribes and Pharisees uh, were, again, teachers of the law, rabbis. They had most of the Old Testament memorized. 
um, they would go around almost like as itinerant preachers to your home. Now, how many Bibles do you guys have in your house? It's okay, probably 10, right? At least one. That is not normal. That's only an invention of the last couple hundred years. If you wanted Bible, you needed one of these guys to come to your house and jot it down for you or at least recite it over and over for you to memorize. They could not charge for that. They were not allowed to charge money for giving you the scriptures, for coming to your house and giving you a private sermon, or for coming and exercising demons. But although they couldn't take actual coin, there were other ways in which they could be compensated. Grain, a horse, other things. Like you, you, you give them treasures, gifts, maybe a little trinket you have, and they were not letting the widows off the hook. They were demanding things of even the widows, the poorest of the poor. It could also be, some have argued that this is some sort of like exactors of taxes on the properties or other things. Or maybe even these scribes were, you know, trying to look spiritual by taking some of these widows under their care and taking care of the finances for the widows, but shaving some off the top and pocketing some. We're not exactly sure. The point, these scribes have been called to defend the rights of the needy, but instead they're taking advantage of the lowliest, the poorest, for their own selfish gain. But it gets worse. For a pretense... Maybe it's not worse, but just different. They make pretense long prayers. They're praying long and wordy prayers to look flashy, to look spiritual, to look really put together, but in reality, their hearts are far from God. Their hearts are off. Their affections are, are not there. And so the conclusion is in verse 47b. Jesus is teaching this. This is weighty. This is heavy, and I don't pretend to understand what all this looks like, but they receive a greater condemnation. It's heavy. Maybe at this point you're like, I am so glad I'm not a pastor. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's these scribes, these Pharisees are um, leaders in a position of responsibility, specifically spiritual oversight, and they're using that responsibility to cheat others to advantage themselves, and they will receive a greater condemnation for that. That's scary. But before you think you're off the hook here, I think all of us are in some sort of leadership role. You have some sort of influence, some sort of responsibility, each and every one of us do, and the point of, it, of, of that, the, the exhortation for us here, is to use any all leadership, all responsibility that you might have, whether it be in life or work, inside the church, outside the church, to help others, not just to serve yourself. So Jesus is instructing his disciples in that day, and therefore, by connection, instructing us to distance ourselves from the behavior, from the, the actions of the scribes and Pharisees. But notice, and I've already mentioned this a little bit, Jesus isn't just after what they do. He's after their hearts. They have messed up hearts. They have disordered loves. So your heart, my heart, and your behavior, my behavior, matter to God. But what do we do with this? We're like, what is going on here? I don't see anybody wearing robes this morning. If you did, you probably just got out of bed or out of the shower or something. But no, no robes present. 
I don't think any of you chose your seat this morning because you thought that was the most spiritual row and really wanted everybody else around you to know that you're spiritual and that's why you sat where you are, right? And so what, what is going on here? What is the aspect of our fallenness, our sinfulness today that connects with this passage and Jesus' words here, and I think it is this. I have one big application point for us, and it's to us, and that is to remember that there is a little scribe inside of you. There is a little Pharisee inside each of us. Or to use the words of the 19th century Anglican bishop by the name of J.C. Ryle, we are naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. Or the great reformer Martin Luther used to speak of our hearts being turned in on ourselves. So one question, because I think this, this aspect of having a little Pharisee in each of us might rear its head in a number of ways, but to serve us, I want you to ask this one question. How are you making yourself look better than you are? How are you making yourself look better than you are? Because you are doing it. I'm doing it. It could rear its head with, a, with just pride, pride in general. You love talking about yourself. You love being the center of attention. You actually don't even need a friend, an accountability partner, a spouse. All you actually need is an audience to hear about you. Pride, arrogance. Maybe someone else is talking about something or sharing a story and you just have to chime in with the time you did something like that or had an experience like that. Taking their story and making it about you. You love to be the center of your universe. That's the little Pharisee in you. It's the little Pharisee in me. Maybe it's looking down on others. I'm not talking about wise discernment. I'm talking about sinful judgment. I cannot believe they would do that. I cannot believe they would sin in that way. I thought they'd be way better at this or that. That's unbelievable. And the sin that's going on in you when you do that is exactly like whatever sin they're struggling with. You're both balls of sin. All the while you have your own struggles. This, this happens with me, not particularly uh, with regards to sin in other people. But like behind the doors kind of thing with pastors, we can get really judgmental with other theologies. I cannot believe that person, that church thinks that. <laughs> Stupid. I'm the greater theologian. I, I, I have this or I'm a better thinker at this. I cannot believe they think this or that about the end times or you, you fill in the blank. That's, that's the little scribe. That's the little Pharisee. Maybe it's even doing religious things to impress others. Doing service or praying or helping the needy even just to make sure someone sees you as doing it. It's hard to love someone and seek to impress them at the same time. I'm not sure it's impossible. I haven't thought enough about it. But it's very difficult to actually love someone while seeking to impress them at the same time. 
Maybe your little Pharisee, your little scribe, rears its head in your life in the form of silence. You're quiet at community group, quiet at the Bible study. Maybe you're doing a book study or a one-to-one Bible reading here at New City, and you're quiet because you care more about looking smarter than actually asking the question of, I don't know what's going on here, help me understand. So you're quiet. You won't ask the question that will probably benefit the whole group, or at the very least will help your discipleship, but instead you're going to be quiet because you want to impress those in the group. Spiritual. Parents, I'm going to get you too, just because this gets me. Parental control of kids at the store. Two weeks ago, maybe it was closer to three weeks ago now, my, my Luke did a cannonball through the emergency exit at Costco, set the whole alarm off. That was great. What I hated most about it was not that he didn't obey me, not that he didn't see my leadership and command in his life as good, but it made me look bad. I have a rogue kid. I do like seminars on parenting, but I can't even get it together. I, I wanted to impress others. Maybe the best for last, the most challenging in my heart maybe. Sins in your life Sins in your heart that you haven't confessed to somebody. There's stuff that you believe, stuff you're struggling with, maybe even on a sin level that you haven't told somebody about. Why would you? You're a Pharisee, if that is the case. The whole point is that you don't want to look like a sinner. You don't want to be the sinner that you are. I want to look better than I am. That's our sinfulness, the little Pharisee the little scribe in each of us, but that's not the end of the story. The good news is this. The gospel has made it so we don't have to pretend. The good news of Jesus Christ makes it so you don't have to try to make others think that you're better than you are. We don't need to hide from sin and shame because Jesus died for that sin and died for your shame We can be free to be ourselves. United to Jesus by faith, we are forgiven saints. And yet still sinners wrestling with our besetting sin. We have the freedom now to banish pride from our lives, to move ourselves from the center of attention. We have the freedom now to stop living for the approval of others. Freedom from being selfish. Freedom from pretending Because you're accepted by God. He approves of you. He accepts you and likes you in Jesus. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to fake it. And the beauty, the the reason the gospel of the kingdom creates humility in us is that when you think about it, you and I, were so sinful that it took the death of the son of the living God on a criminal's cross to be forgiven. Why in the world are we prideful? God had to die for you so that you could be made a child of God. You couldn't save yourself? Maybe it's the the Pharisee that's in each and every one of us that I've kind of been expounding upon. But even your good deeds needed atoning because even your righteous deeds are stained with sin. 
Like, wow, glad I came to church today, Taylor. This is great. The beauty is that even our righteousness has taints of sin in it. But even because of that, all of that, what I'm talking about here is freedom from pride, freedom from being a scribe because Jesus has performed in our place. He's been righteous for us. He died for your unrighteousness and was raised for our justification. And the beauty now is that we have God as Father. We don't have to go around pretending. We don't have to go around being the little scribe that we sometimes are. And when we do, tomorrow, when you're prideful, this week maybe, when you're silent at community group and you really have a good question but you don't want to look stupid, this week when you're judgmental towards someone else, this week when you struggle with that same sin that's been biting at your heels maybe your whole life, God has given us a solution. It's to breathe out repentance and to receive mercy. To confess that, to name it, and by faith receive the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Because as we say often here, you are way more sinful than you think or know. But Jesus is way more gracious than you can ever imagine. To use the words of a succinct proverb that I came across this week. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's good news. The gospel of the kingdom ought to create in us humility. A humility that frees us to be genuine, to be open. Not prideful, not needing to impress others, not selfish. And if what I've been saying is right, then what naturally flows from that heart that has been touched by God, that is humbled by the gospel, is going to be a life of generosity. Which leads me to my second point, and much more brief. The giving of the poor widow. A changed heart that gives generously. This is chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Now remember the context. Jesus has just gone after the scribes and Pharisees. Don't be like them. They devour widows' houses. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up. And saw a poor widow. Don't be like them. Prideful, arrogant, devouring widows' houses. Oh, look at that. A widow. Putting in two small copper coins. Literally, think pennies. She's given more than all of you. Again, probably, I can just see it, looking at the scribes and Pharisees. And if you're there, if you're in their shoes, you're kind of, wouldn't you be like, really, Jesus? Some of these guys are like CEOs. They're putting in tithes that have multiple zeros on it. She barely put in two pennies. She gave more. Literally in the Greek, she gave more than all of y'all combined. Why? Because that, that verse I put on the right side of your insert, God knows the heart. He's not only after our outward conformity, not only after our behavior, he wants our hearts and actions to align. Jesus knows the heart of this woman. She's giving in a way that she feels it. Does that make sense? It's a sacrifice for her to give in this way. And yet, we are supposed to assume that she's doing it because she loves the Lord. 
this hurts. I feel this donation. And yet we're seeing her shaped by the goodness of God, giving as one who loves God. And in these about 70 sermons or so we've done through Luke, it's interesting to me that all the times that Luke describes what it's like to be a disciple, what it looks like to follow Jesus, this widow is nailing it. Let me give you a couple. Do not be anxious about anything. Two coins, that's all I've got. God will take care of me. Check. A willingness to forsake all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Check. Rendering to God what is God's from a couple weeks ago. Check. Not serving God and money. Trusting in Jesus. Seeking first the kingdom. I could go through all of these discipleship texts and it is seen in the heart of this poor widow who put in two small copper coins. So the challenge for us is do we think like this? This isn't a a tithe sermon. I'm not going to talk about money, but to connect this with what we looked at last week. Are we living for the long tomorrow? The resurrection from the dead that is yet future when we will be with God forever. Are we thinking about that in a way that affects the way we give? Are we giving to the church and to God's mission in a way that costs us something? Do we feel it? Are we cheerful givers, as Paul writes? Put that verse in your insert, 2 Corinthians 9. Paul says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because for God loves a cheerful giver. Now you decide. But the beauty of that verse, the beauty of of cheerfully giving, is actually in a verse just before, which has quickly become one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Same context of giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The living, eternal Son of God, the richest of the rich, became poor for you. So poor that he died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins gloriously rising from the dead three days later, so all who trust in him, to use the words of this, by his poverty might become rich. That's humbling. The gospel humbles us, guys. You, me, we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't be righteous enough. We couldn't redeem ourselves. We couldn't even stop living to impress others. Without Jesus, we're actually unable to stop seeking approval of others and praise of other people. We needed Jesus to become poor so we could become rich. We needed Jesus to die and rise again, <coughs> excuse me, to make us friends of God. That's humbling. And just like the widow, now that we know that truth, now that we hear and believe the gospel of the kingdom, we simply respond to God with joyful worship. 
through giving of ourselves, through giving of our finances, giving sacrificially that costs us something because it costs Jesus everything. And so let us be generous people like this widow because we have a very generous God who, though he was rich, became poor for us so that by his poverty we can become rich. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord Jesus, thank you for becoming poor for us. We needed you to save us, and you did exactly that. Pray that we would respond to you with a life of generosity and know that you have freed us from living for the praise of others because we are already accepted by you. Thank you. Amen.